Good morning to you. Please turn with me to the book of Psalms, number 129. We are in the midst of studying the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, They begin with Psalm 120. They end, conclude with Psalm 134. Apparently, the Israelites, it was their custom to sing this set, this group of psalms, as they sojourned annually to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts of Jehovah. And so we've been studying them for a couple of months now. We have a few to go, and today our, our goal is Psalm 129. And so please follow along as I read this text for us. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now let's be up front. Uh, This psalm, right at the outset, poses a problem for most people. It poses a problem for most people because it belongs not only to this group known as the Psalms of Ascent, but it belongs to a group of psalms known as the imprecatory psalms. There's a word I want you to say later ten times quickly, imprecatory. To imprecate simply means to curse, to invoke God's curse, to call down God's curse. So in Psalm 55, just by way of example, We read, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. In Psalm 58, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Psalm 69, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Psalm 109, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. That is but a sampling of the curses found in this grouping of psalms termed the imprecatory psalms. That poses a problem. It poses a problem for the modern mind. I dare say it poses a problem for most people in our day. Why is that? Great question. I've been stewing over this one for quite a while. Why is that? Simply put, I believe, I affirm the answer is because most people do not have the mental framework uh, to understand the imprecatory psalms. When one of my daughters was three years old, you can figure out which one that was, three years old, she had a ball. I think we bought it for one Christmas. And this ball was, half of it was red, half of it was blue. And you could pull it apart. And when you pulled it apart on either end, these yellow pieces fell out. 
And uh, these yellow pieces were in various shapes, cross, four-leaf clover, diamond, oval, circle, triangle, square. And on that red and blue ball, there were what? Openings which matched those yellow pieces. And it was fascinating, dare I say riveting, to watch that little three-year-old with her chubby little fingers pick up one of those yellow pieces, the four-leaf clover, for example, and try to shove it in the oval. Impossible. And then pick up the triangle and try to shove it in the cross. Impossible. There was no way to get those pieces in any other opening than the one for which they were intended. Uh, Regrettably, uh, our minds are like that. And many times we're trying to shove a triangle in a four-leaf clover. Or we're trying to force a circle in a square, and we take out a hammer, and we bang on the thing, but it will not go in. And sadly, many today, I'll repeat it, they just don't have the mental framework to understand the imprecatory psalms. And therefore, these imprecatory psalms and the psalmist calling down this, these blood-chilling curses from God upon his enemies, there's just no way to compute it. I won't take a survey because I already know the answer to the survey. How many of you here gathered this very day have ever heard a sermon on an imprecatory psalm? To my shame, let me ask, Stephen, how many sermons have you ever preached on an imprecatory psalm? This is my first. Here we go. Why? Because we do not naturally gravitate to them. And they pose a problem for us. And again, they pose a problem for us because of our mental framework. Now, you're going to have to take your medicine this morning. And it's not going to taste good. I'm going to force it down. Cod liver oil. My mother used to give me cod liver oil as a boy. She was English. I don't know. It goes way back. Some sort of tradition of forcing that down. We're going to take our cod liver oil today. And it's not going to go down easily. And we might even gag on it a little bit. But we need to take our medicine. And we need to understand, grapple with why our mental framework is not in place whereby we can embrace the imprecatory psalms. And I'm going to give you seven reasons why. I'm going to hurry. At least I say my plan is to hurry through the first six. And then I'm going to camp out a wee bit on the seventh because it is extremely significant and in particular significant for Psalm 129, which is where we want to get to eventually. But here we go. Seven reasons why the imprecatory psalms are are, are difficult, pose a problem for most people in our day. Number one is this. They have a distorted view of Scripture. They have a distorted view of Scripture. By that I mean they have a disjointed view of Scripture. They fail to appreciate the harmony in Scripture. They fail to appreciate the continuity of Scripture. And therefore, oftentimes, when it comes to the Old Testament, they relegate it to the age of darkness and irrelevance. Here's the problem. Psalm 69, which is in all likelihood the chief, the main, the principal, of the imprecatory psalms is actually quoted at least three times in the New Testament. And guess what? Our meek and mild Lord Jesus even quoted it. It's recorded in the book of John. So we cannot sidestep the imprecatory psalms. We cannot simply ignore them. We cannot simply relegate them into the realm of the irrelevant. No. We hold to the unity and the harmony of Scripture. Second reason is this. People today, many people... They are what we can only call theological Marcionites. Theological Marcionites. 
Marcion was a man, a heretic actually, who lived in the 3rd, 4th century. And Marcion, among other things, uh, proposed that what we have in the Bible is actually two gods. We have God in the Old Testament and we have God in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament, not so nice. God in the New Testament, really nice. I dare say many people today are modern-day Marcionites. They might never articulate it as such, but that is exactly how they think. If sort of that God in the Old Testament, don't give me him. And then we have the God of the New Testament. And so they may not believe in two gods, but they certainly believe this, that somewhere in that intertestamental period, God underwent a major personality change. Something happened with God between the Testaments. He's not the same God he was in the Old Testament, the not-so-nice God, and now the nice God. They are functionally theological Marcionites. Spurgeon, he quipped, he stated about a century ago, the terrible avenger is to be praised, as well as the loving Redeemer. Against this, the sympathy of man's evil heart with sin rebel. Man's evil heart cries out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. That is to be a functional Marcionite. Third reason is this. They have a deficient view of sin. We have in our day trivialized sin. And we must never lose sight. If we lose sight of this, the imprecatory Psalms, they are closed, shut up to us. If we lose sight of the true nature and the very essence of sin, that in every sin there is a spirit of atheism, there is a spirit of rebellion, there is a spirit of hatred, and there is a spirit of murder, murder. There we arrive at the true nature of sin and the depravity of our own hearts. The fourth reason is this. They fail to grasp the magnitude of God's Justice. They fail to grasp, appreciate the magnitude of God's justice. Related to that, they fail to differentiate, distinguish between personal vengeance and moral repugnance, between petty vindictiveness and perfect righteousness between self-seeking revenge and God-glorifying justice. And because this is muddied, because this is clouded, the distinction between these two, there is no appreciation or there is very little, let's say, appreciation of the magnitude of God's justice. Fifth reason is this. They miss the the Christ-centered focus of Scripture. They miss the Christ-centered focus of Scripture. We'll return to this later. Let me say at this juncture, at this point, that Psalm 129 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus fulfills the cry of the psalmist. That as the psalmist curses his enemies, we have a preview of the Lord Jesus cursing his enemies. The Lord Jesus alone has the right to call down God's judgment and indignation upon his enemies. And the Lord Jesus does indeed call down God's wrath upon his enemies. His Father has set, has established Him at His right hand. Until when? Until all His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. That's what's going on right now. That's how we are to interpret and understand, view human history right now. 
The king does reign. And men and women everywhere are called. They are commanded to kiss the king right now, lest he become angry. And he reigns right now at his father's right hand. Over the, he reigns by providence over the entire world of creation. And he reigns by providence for the good of his church, in whom, by whom, through whom he reigns. And he does so until his father makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And then these cries of the imprecatory psalms, they will be fulfilled. There will be a judgment. There will be a meeting out of the wrath of God. The sixth reason is this. They minimize. They minimize the sheer horror of God's coming judgment. They minimize. Again, trivialize is a good word. The sheer horror of God's coming judgment. This is taken out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul declares that Christ is coming. He is coming. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, this is the word Paul uses, it's not my word, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. And now here's reason number seven. And I want to camp out here a little bit. Reason number seven, why the framework is lacking for so many people when it comes to understanding and embracing the imprecatory psalms, they employ a clumsy definition of forgiveness. Hmm, What does that mean? They employ, they use, they ascribe to, they hold to, they believe in a very clumsy definition of forgiveness. I want to begin by illustrating this, and I've selected this carefully because uh, this is an emotionally charged issue, emotionally charged examples. So rather than latch on to anything too close to home in our own day, I've stepped back in time, 1997. I think the year was 1997. And this is taken out of the Wall Street Journal. And the author of this brief article penned the following in 1997, the bodies of the three teenagers shot dead last December by a fellow high school student in West Paducah, Kentucky, were not yet buried before some of their schoolmates hung a sign outside the school announcing, we forgive you, Mike. They were referring to the killer, a fellow classmate. This immediate and automatic forgiveness is not surprising. Over the past generation, many Christians have adopted the idea that they should forgive everyone who commits evil against anyone, no matter how great and cruel, and whether or not the evildoer repents. The number of examples is almost as large as the number of heinous crimes. So last August, remember this is 1997, for instance, The preacher at a Martha's Vineyard church service attended by the vacationing President Clinton announced that the duty of all Christians was to forgive Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber who murdered 168 Americans. Can each of you look at a picture of Timothy McVeigh and forgive him, the reverend asked. I have, and I invite you to do the same. The author of this article penned, I am appalled 
And I am frightened by this feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. I am appalled. And I am frightened by this feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness. It is also known as therapeutic forgiveness. Where has it come from? It emerged in the 70s and 80s. Uh, through several popular books, and by consequence made its way, found its way even back into the church. And simply put, this feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness, or let's use the simpler expression, this idea of therapeutic forgiveness is based on a very simple definition, a clumsy definition, based on a very simple concept of what forgiveness is. Here it is. Forgiveness. They define forgiveness as ceasing to feel anger or resentment toward a person who has wronged you. So to forgive someone who has wronged you is to cease to feel anger and resentment. That makes forgiveness what? An emotion. Biblical forgiveness is not an emotion. The problem has been compounded by what? I'm moving slowly here, and I'm moving slowly intentionally. The problem has been compounded by what? That countless Christians have transferred this idea, this sloppy definition of forgiveness, uh, to God. And so when they think of God's forgiveness, they define it in terms of an emotion. God loves you. Um, The emotion of forgiveness is incompatible with what? Anger. God, God, God can't be angry. God isn't angry with you. God loves you. God's willing to forgive. As a matter of fact, you know what? God has already forgiven you. All you need to do is accept it. Um, That is a sloppy definition of biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness is not an emotion. Biblical forgiveness is a transaction. Biblical forgiveness, by definition, involves essential ingredients. To start off, there must be satisfied justice. And justice is satisfied where? At Calvary's cross, where the Lord Jesus is made sin for sinners. And he bears the righteous indignation of God. And there is a relational break between father and son as the father hides the glory of his countenance from his son. And darkness pervades the scene and the son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Justice is meted out. And justice is satisfied. Building on that, there must be repentance. What does John say in his first epistle? If. If, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There must be repentance. And so where there is satisfied justice, and where there is second, second, this, this, this essential ingredient of repentance, there follows what? 
Forgiveness. And forgiveness leads to what? Reconciliation. We are now at peace with God. Peace means what? Binding together what was formerly separated. And that leads what? To a restored relationship. Restored fellowship. That is a transaction. That is how God forgives us. When God forgives us, it's not a changing of His emotions. It is a transaction that takes place on the basis of His satisfied justice. When we repent and confess our sin, He forgives us, He restores us, He reconciles us to Himself. Yet that sloppy definition of forgiveness, that feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness, that idea of therapeutic forgiveness, has infiltrated the church and it has overrun the very nature of what it means for God to forgive the sinner. Not only has it overrun and transformed what it means for God to forgive the sinner, it has overrun and transformed what it means for us as Christians to forgive those who hurt us. Let me give you a scenario. You've got an 18-year-old young woman At 12 years of age, she's abused by a man. And here we are six years later. And that man has never owned up to what he did, let alone repent. Here's the question. Should she forgive him? If your answer to that question is yes, you have succumbed to a therapeutic understanding of forgiveness. Now I've got your attention, don't I? The answer is no. She should not forgive him. As a matter of fact, I dare say she can't forgive him because there is no forgiveness where there is no repentance. Forgiveness is based on repentance and forgiveness leads to restoration. Forgiveness is a transaction. And forgiveness is impossible where there is no repentance. Now, I've really got your attention. You know what I'm going to do? Just to annoy you a little, I'm just going to leave it there, suspended in air. And we're going to swing back. We're going to come full circle back to that when we enter into the realm of application. What we need to do is get into the text. With that framework, those seven points clearly in view, I, I, pr- I pray now we've got a circle and we're putting it in this circle. We've got a triangle. We're ready to put it in a triangle. That four-leaf clover, whatever that thing is called, I can't remember. You're putting it in the four-leaf clover and all the yellow things are back inside the red and blue ball. I hope that's where we're at now. And we have the framework to compute, understand, embrace what the psalmist is saying here. Let me read the psalm again for you in its entirety, and then we'll notice that there are three stages in the development of his thought flow. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So stage number one 
in the development of his thought flow. It's simply this. The psalmist, in verses 1 through 3, he experiences affliction. He gives us, I'm going to move through these quickly, five details concerning this affliction. First of all, notice it is corporate. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And so he's not speaking in the first instance of a personal experience, although he has experienced it and been a part of it. He is speaking of what? A corporate, collective experience. He is speaking on behalf of the faith community as a whole. Notice, secondly, that this affliction is severe. Greatly have they afflicted me. He repeats it at the start of verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me. So this is not some trivial matter. This is some mind-tormenting, gut-wrenching, life-altering experience that he has gone through. Severe. Notice thirdly that the affliction is personal. Greatly have they. It's personal. Have afflicted me. He is not speaking of some natural calamity. He is not describing some natural disaster. He is expressing the fact that they have been victimized. Victimized. It is personal. Notice, fourthly, it is persistent. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Since my youth. Now remember, let Israel, all Israel now say, when was Israel young? You delve into the prophets and you see that used as a reference to when? Back when they were in the land of Egypt, the days of their youth. And even from their youth, when they grew into a nation in Egypt, they found themselves in what? Bondage. They found themselves tormented under severe affliction. And their entire history, right up to the present, that is the present in which the author penned this psalm, in that entire period, their history is a story of affliction upon affliction. Repeated, persistent. Notice, fifthly, the fifth detail into verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. What's he referring to? He might be referring, I've picked this up from literature, I don't know how true it is, but he might very, very well be referring to what was a sadistic practice on the part of some conquering armies in that day. They would literally force their captors to lay down in the field. They would affix the plow to the oxen, and they would plow their bodies into the field. He may very well be conjuring up that disgusting mental image, or he may be speaking metaphorically. This idea of plowing upon the back, this idea of making long their furrows, is synonymous with what? Whipping, beating. Either way, take your pick. This is brutality, is it not? This is, this is an example of, 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 of a personal attack which is ruthless in its, very, in, in its very essence. And so we have this five-fold description, these five details of the experience that he went through in this affliction. And yet notice what he declares in the midst of it all, the end of verse 2. Yet they have not prevailed against me. Now, he's speaking collectively, corporately, Israel. They have not prevailed against me. Here we still are. 
As we look back over the centuries, we go all the way back to our youth, back in the land of Egypt, the faith community has persisted. The faith community has persevered. Here we still are. Why? How does he account for that? It leads us into the second stage in the development of his thought flow. Into verse 4, the psalmist looks to God. So they have not prevailed against me. Why? Here's the answer. He looks to God. Verse 4, the Lord, Yahweh, is... Righteous. In other words, he's wonderfully faithful. He has cut the cords of the wicked. That is the central theme in all of the Psalms of Ascent. The central theme in each and every one of these Psalms is what? That as we sojourn, as we find ourselves in the midst of our pilgrimage here on earth, we must always stay focused upon whom? Upon God. Go all the way back to Psalm 120. Look at this. Just briefly. Take this quick journey with me. Psalm 120. Look at the first verse. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Look at Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? He answers in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord. Look at Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 124, verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Psalm 125, still verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved but abides forever. Psalm 126, you guessed it, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord walks in his ways. What is the psalmist trying to do? Time and time and time again. He is directing us where to look. Look up. That as we sojourn on earth, and as we experience the different life experiences described in each of these psalms, ultimately he is forcing us, he is causing us, he is leading us, he is pleading with us to fix our gaze, our eyes upon the Lord. And that's exactly what he does here in Psalm 129. Yes, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. But in the midst of that terrible affliction, they have not prevailed against me. Why? And again, he points us heavenward in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He is wonderfully faithful. What has he done? He tells us right there in verse 4. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What's he talking about? I think he's building on that word picture he has just used in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. They took their oxen out of the barn, the shed. They fixed fixed the, the plow with cords. And they have plowed upon my back. And so sticking with that word picture, but the Lord has proved faithful, wonderfully faithful. He has proved righteous. He has cut. That is, he has severed the cords of the wicked. And so, yes, we have been greatly afflicted. Greatly afflicted ever since the time of our youth. 
And yet the faith community, not individually, the faith community can still declare what? Here we still are. They have not prevailed against us. Why? Because the Lord is righteous. But not only, not only is the Lord's righteousness, not only is his wonderful faithfulness seen in the preservation of his people, it is also seen equally true in his punishment of his enemies. And that leads us where? Into the third stage in the development of his thought flow. Verse 5. This is why the psalm is classified as an imprecatory psalm. Because here, what does he do? He calls down a curse. The psalmist entrusts, in verses 5 through 8, he entrusts his enemies to God's judgment. That's putting it mildly. I'll tell you what I had originally for that heading. Maybe I should have stuck with it. I'm going to mention it now, so I am sticking with it. The psalmist entrusts his enemies to God's judgment. What I had originally is simply this. The psalmist cries for vengeance. That's what's going on here. He cries out for vengeance. Look at what he says, verse 6. Verse 5. May all who hate Zion, the faith community... So those who are her enemies, those who have afflicted us, those who have afflicted us in such unspeakable ways, hear hear God, here's what I'm praying for, here's what I'm asking for. May they be put to shame. May they be shamed. May they be turned backward. In other words, may they be thwarted. And now he employs a word picture in verses 6 through 7. Here's what I want, God. Here's exactly what I'm asking for. Let them, all those who hate Zion, I want you to make them like the grass on the housetops. It's lost a little bit on us, but if you've ever been to England, into a rural setting, village, you'll have noticed the thatched roofs. If you've ever spent any time in Africa, certainly in a village context, you'll notice the grass thatched roofs. And even in that day, People would use the grass of the field, they would cut it, they would bind it together, thatch it together, and they would place it on the roof. And that grass was fresh. And if the timing was right, if a little rain fell and the sun were to shine and uh, the temperature was just right, you know what that grass would do? It would actually grow for a little while, for just a brief time. And then the sun would scorch it, it would dry out, no root to feed it or sustain it. It would wither away. It would decay. It would die. And then it would need to be replaced. God, that's what I want you to do to them. Ooh, do we have the mental framework to understand that? Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand. It's useless nor the binder achieves his arms. It's completely worthless. And then he brings it all to a head. Nor do those, so it's negative, nor do those who pass by. Here's what they don't say. They don't say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. If they don't say that, by consequence, what are they saying? May the Lord curse you. May the Lord curse you. There's an exposition of the psalm. What are we to make of it all? 
I want to sum it up by way of two points of application. The first is the most important. We're still in the realm of interpretation and also dovetailing now with application. And then the second, it gets very personal. And as promised, we'll come full circle, as I said a few moments ago. But here's the first point of application. As we, as we now understand this psalm, what he is saying, and we bring it to the present, this side of the cross, this psalm is fulfilled in Christ. We dare not miss that. This psalm is fulfilled in Christ. We can go, and I mentioned this text in the sermon notes, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 through 9. And there we see in that messianic text the Lord Jesus speaking and describing his experience just as the psalmist describes it here in Psalm 129. And so it is, like the psalmist, it is Christ who experiences affliction. He cries in Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike. Like the psalmist, he looks to God. And so he declares in Isaiah 50, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. I know that I shall not be put to shame. And then just like the psalmist, he entrusts his enemies to God's judgment. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so as already mentioned, right now in this day, Ever since his ascension, his coronation in glory at the right hand of the majesty on high, until the day of his return when he consummates his kingdom, we see the Lord Jesus reigning. We behold the Lord Jesus enthroned at the right hand of God where he builds his church to such an extent and such a degree that the very gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And there we have the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning now, calling his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, calling them by his word, by his spirit, through his church. And there we have the Lord Jesus ruling and waiting until when? Until that day appointed by the Father when every last enemy culminating in death will be made a footstool for his feet. We have the fulfillment. We have the complete fulfillment of the psalmist's cry here in Psalm 129. We have the Lord Jesus experiencing his affliction here on earth in his body. We have the Lord Jesus entrusting himself to the one who deals and judges righteously, his Father. And we have the Lord Jesus in that coming day calling down that curse, that judgment upon all those who have opposed him, upon all those who do not worship God, upon all those who have disobeyed the gospel. But here's the thing, it hasn't stopped. Just as the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, suffered in his physical body, ever since he ascended on high, he has continued to suffer. How? Through his mystical body. That when he ascended, as a testimony of his ascension, coronation, exaltation. What did he do on the day of Pentecost? He poured out his Holy Spirit. And he formed what? His spiritual body, his mystical body, his church. And even today we have what? We have the church triumphant. We have those saints throughout the centuries who have been gathered to their head 
in glory on high. And we have the church militant right now on earth. And Christ continues to suffer affliction through his church, his mystical body right now. The seed of the serpent continues to what? Wage war against the seed of the woman. Those who hate Christ still hate Christ. And how is that hatred expressed? How is that opposition expressed? It is expressed in opposition, but posing and afflicting the body of Christ. That is the mystical body of Christ. And so this psalm actually becomes our experience, doesn't it? We are greatly afflicted. Our brothers and sisters in certain parts of the world afflicted in unspeakable ways. We do entrust ourselves to God. We look to Him. We know we live with this tension right now, this world we're in. But we're living in expectation of that coming glory. And we do pray this prayer, that where there is no repentance, we do not repay evil with evil. We do pray for those who persecute and afflict us. But where there is no repentance, where there is no turning from sin, we have this absolute certainty. What? The judgment is coming. The day of reckoning is coming. Now let me lead you, take you by the hand very gently into the second point of application. Here's where we get very personal, and here's where we come full circle. I left you hanging, just suspended in air, that that scenario, that hypothetical situation. A young woman, 12 years of age, abused. Years later, uh, still, uh, the man responsible, guilty of that, never acknowledged it, never confessed it, and most certainly never repented it. Here's the question. Should she forgive him? The answer to that question is no. Uh, She can not forgive him. How do we handle affliction of a personal nature? How do we handle abuse of a very intimate, personal nature? How do we react to those who victimize us? How do we react and respond when we are the victims of violent crime? How do we react and respond when we are the victims of abandonment, the victims of verbal slander, the victims of betrayal, deep betrayal? Here's the answer. It emerges from Psalm 129. We handle that. We handle that situation. Here's the appropriate response. We do so by staying focused on Christ's plowed back. There's the answer. We remain focused on Christ's plowed back, his suffering. When we do, by the Spirit of God, we are enabled to do four things. First is this. We are enabled to escape the prison of the past. And so abuse is a prison cell, is it not? Verbal or physical. That kind of torment. You go back into those first few verses of 129. And the brutality there, and you think of the brutality associated with accompanying abuse, and you think of the prison cell that that becomes for individuals, for people. When we remain focused on Christ's plowed back, we are enabled to escape the prison of the past. How? Because it is Christ who now shapes our identity. It is Christ who shapes our identity. Because we are one with Him, we are justified in God's sight. Because we are one with him, the Lord Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. And do you know what that makes us? That makes us God's beloved. 
That means God, as a father, is tenderly disposed to us. And we no longer define ourselves by how others have abused us. We no longer define ourselves by others, how others have misused us. We define ourselves. We derive our identity from what God thinks of us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our identity. And that frees us from the prison cell of the past. Secondly, when we stay focused on Christ's plowed back, it moves us to squash hatred and bitterness. You see, that's the clumsy definition of forgiveness. That's what's often described as forgiveness, but that isn't forgiveness. That's simply not repaying evil for evil. It's simply mortifying hatred. It's mortifying resentment. We are called to do that. How do we do that? We do that by remaining focused on Christ's plowed back, his suffering, the cross. When we do so, it enables us to mortify the desire for personal revenge. We remember, oh, we remember in the words of Luther, I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. That humbles me. It humbles me to the ground. It mortifies my hatred, my animosity, and my resentment. And it squashes my desire for personal, vindictive revenge. We stay focused on Christ's plow back. What's the result? It helps us to offer conditional forgiveness. It's all we can do. It helps us, strengthens us, enables us to offer conditional forgiveness. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32 that we're to forgive others. How? How God in Christ has forgiven us. Please understand, friend. God's forgiveness of us is not unconditional. It's not. Huge fallacy. God's forgiveness of us is conditional. It depends upon His satisfied justice in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon Calvary's cross. And it depends upon what? Our repentance. When we confess our sin, we repent of our sin. That is when He forgives us. A transaction has taken place because the penalty for our sin has been transferred to the Lord Jesus. He has paid it in full. Therefore, the enmity has been removed. We are now at peace with God. We are reconciled to Him. And our relationship is restored in Christ. We are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. All we can do is offer conditional forgiveness. Be willing to forgive. Be willing to be restored. Be willing to be reconciled. But it all is conditional upon what? Repentance. But it's Christ's plowed back that brings us into that state and keeps us there because when we contemplate the cross, we're crushed to the ground, overwhelmed by God's love for us, and we are compelled to extend compassion to others, even those who have hated us and afflicted us. But fourthly, as we stay focused on Christ's plowed back, it enables us to do what? It strengthens us. Here's the perplexing thing. It strengthens us to do what? To wait for the avenger. To wait for the avenger. Yes, we're free from the prison cell of the past because we now identify ourselves in Christ transformational. Yes, we mortify that personal vindictiveness, desire for revenge. 
personal revenge. We mortify that hatred and that bitterness, and we do so as we stand at Calvary's cross, remembering again in the words of Luther that I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. We offer conditional forgiveness. Where there is repentance, we forgive. The Lord Jesus has called us to do that. And we forgive as often as people confess and as often as they repent. And there is reconciliation. There is restoration. It is a transaction. It is not an emotion. But where there is no repentance, where there's no confession, where there's no admittance of wrongdoing, what do we do? We continue to offer forgiveness. And we wait. And we wait for whom? The avenger. And our prayer is what? It is the imprecatory psalm. Beloved, says Paul in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. He doesn't stop there, does he? What does he say next? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Mm. Do we have the mental framework for that? You want a, you want a vivid, uh, multicolored example of that? The Apostle Paul, Second Timothy, I think it's chapter four, writing obviously to his younger colleague Timothy, and he warns Timothy. He tells him, "Look, there's this fella out there creeping around. His name's Alexander. He's a coppersmith. I want you to avoid him. And here's why I want you to avoid him because he did me great harm. Oh, he did me great harm." What? We don't know all the details. Maybe imprisonment, responsible for Paul's imprisonment, responsible for some sort of verbal slander, just taking his name and dragging it through the dirt, possible for physical torture, abuse. We don't know, but he warns him, stay away from Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm. And then what does he say? But I've forgiven him. No, he does not. But you should forgive him. That's not what he says. I've gone to him and asked him for forgiveness because I've actually had thoughts concerning his judgment and felt I now need to go and confess my sin to him even though he has no acknowledgement or is not prepared to confess his sin toward me. That's not what he says. What does he say? You stay away from Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Did the Apostle Paul pray for that man? I don't doubt it for a moment. He prayed for his salvation. Did the Apostle Paul extend forgiveness to that man? I don't doubt he extended forgiveness until the day he was martyred. Paul was martyred. Would the Apostle Paul have helped that man if he had encountered him on the street in dire straits and dire needs? I don't doubt he would have. The Apostle Paul knew, he himself said it, were not to repay evil for evil. But the Apostle Paul also knew this, that if Alexander remains in his obstinate state, If he refuses to repent, here's where I rest. I rest in the fact that the avenger is coming. I rest in this fact that the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Well, there are one or two perplexing looks out there as I survey our congregation this morning. Let me repeat the four so that we are perfectly clear. The four implications, very personal, that we as Christians are focused, let's stick with that mental image, of Christ's plowed back, his bloody agony upon Calvary's cross, and his ear-piercing, heart-wrenching cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
There we stand in the shadow of the cross. As we do, the Spirit uses that. How? It enables us to escape the prison of the past when we have been victimized. When we have been sorely abused or misused, we do not identify ourselves on the basis of things done to us in the past. We identify ourselves, we define ourselves how? Now, in the present, by what God thinks of us, says of us, in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are numbered among His beloved. And as we remain focused on Christ's plowed back, it squashes our hatred personal vindictiveness. It squashes our our bitterness, our resentment. We're broken before the cross. And so we're not looking out to get even with anybody. As we stay focused upon His plowed back, we offer, and we offer till our dying day, conditional forgiveness. That where there is repentance, we forgive in a moment. Why? Just as we have been forgiven. Even those who have victimized us in the past, if they are brought to Calvary's cross and they see the darkness of their sin, they behold their depravity and the wonders of God's grace in the Lord Jesus. They're brought to a saving knowledge of Christ and they come in repentance. We now have a fellow believer in the Lord. We have one we now stand with and we can forgive by the power of the cross. But all we're doing until then is offering conditional forgiveness. And then what do we do as we stay focused on Christ's plowed back where there is no repentance? We simply wait. And we wait. And we wait for the avenger. Again, let me conclude with Spurgeon's quote. Again, it's very appropriate, uh, very good. He stated, oh, it was about a century ago, and stated it so clearly, the terrible avenger is to be praised as well as the loving redeemer. Against this, the sympathy of man's evil heart with sin rebels. It cries out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. I hope, I pray, if you're still playing with that red and blue ball, the pieces have gone plunk, whatever sound plastic on plastic makes, that we really have the necessary framework in terms of our understanding of God our understanding of sin, our understanding of the cross, our understanding of coming judgment, our understanding of biblical forgiveness, and our understanding of what it means to praise, yes, a loving, wonderful Redeemer, and equally true at the same time, a terrible avenger. Our Father, in glory above, again, we pray, simply give us eyes to see. These are difficult things indeed. We, we are the recipients of so many different messages in our day. So many different sound bites, so many skewed notions of who you are, so many twisted notions of what Scripture actually teaches and says. And so give us discernment, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. And above all else, we pray that you would draw forth from our hearts worship this day, that worship of which you alone are worthy. We ask it, seek it from you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.